Good evening. Well, here we are. We're going to start a new study tonight. I hope you've got your Bibles. I want you to begin by opening to the table of contents. You know where that is. That's at the very front of your Bible. You say, Pastor, I know where this book is. Well, just humor me for a second. Table of contents. Look under the New Testament. And then I want you to find the book of Ephesians. Now, before we get to Ephesians, just looking at the table of contents, what are the first four books of the New Testament called? The Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The next book on that list is what book? Acts. What, what, do you know, can you tell me anything about the book of Acts? What is it about? The early church. It's the story of the early church and the spread of the gospel uh, throughout the, the world at that time. And then we come to the book of what? Romans. Who wrote the book of Romans? Apostle Paul did to the church of Rome. That's a hard question. Dave got it wrong. All right. And then we come to the, the next two letters are called 1st and 2nd Corinthians. Who wrote those two letters? Paul. And it was to the church of Corinth. And then we have the book of, what's the next letter? Galatians. Of course, I'm referring to them as a book, but you know, uh, I'm, I'm assuming that you know, that these are actually letters that were written. Uh, they, they were then compiled into what we call the Bible. But, but we have the letters to 1st and 2nd Corinthians, and the letters uh, to the Galatians. Churches of Galatia uh, is what we would say there. And then after the, the letter to the churches of Galatia, or Galatians, we come to the book of Ephesians. Now I want you to tell me real quickly... Everything you know about Ephesians. When you think of Ephesians, let me put it this way. When you think of Ephesians, what are some things that come to your mind? Love? What somebody else? I heard somebody else say something. Worship? Speak a little louder. Armor of God? Written by Paul? prison all right very good very good temple of diana y'all know some good things about this grace that's a good word for ephesians grace all right here's the thing about ephesians that that i want you to get before we we kind of dive in uh the thing i want you to understand about ephesians right now and I don't mean to insult you by any form of the imagination. I, I'm not trying to insult you at all. But I'm hoping over the next several weeks or months, however long it takes us to go through Ephesians, I'm hoping that you learn a whole lot more about this book than, than you know right now. I mean, that's one of our purposes, right? That we need to learn, we want to grow, we want to obtain more knowledge. And not just for knowledge's sake, we want to live it out into our lives. And so I'm hoping at the end of the of the study when we get to the last chapter. By the way, do you know how many chapters are in Ephesians? Six chapters. There's six chapters in Ephesians. So when we get to the... It's a fairly brief letter, fairly brief book. When we get to the end of those six chapters, I'm hoping at the end of that sixth six chapter, you're going to look back and say, man, I have learned so much about not just this book, but so much about the way God wants me to live. All right? And so let's just make that our prayer as we get started. Let's join me as I pray. Father, uh, I do pray that you would help us uh, in the weeks and months ahead as we're looking at this letter that Paul wrote. Uh, Father, I pray that uh, you'd grant us understanding that your Holy Spirit, you've told us in other places in your word that your Holy Spirit is our teacher. And I pray for that, Father. Your Holy Spirit would teach us. Your Holy Spirit would, would guide us into truth. I pray that you'd give us insight into this book that we've never had before. I pray, Father, that we would see things there in the book that would apply to our marriages, that would apply to our homes, uh, that would apply to our businesses, that would apply to everyday life. I pray, Father, when we get to Ephesians chapter 6 and we get to the end of that chapter, that we'll be able to look back and see how our lives have been different because of the time we have invested in this book. So we pray for the Holy Spirit to guide us. The Holy Spirit to open our eyes and open our ears. And the Holy Spirit to speak to us. 
even here tonight. And I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. The Los Angeles Times reported several years ago the true story of a man and, and, a, and a, his wife who died in their 50s and they were found dead in their apartment. And the autopsy revealed that they had died of malnutrition. Uh, what was interesting was that when the police found their bodies, uh, which had already begun to decay by the time they had been discovered, when they discovered their bodies, they searched the apartment and found a closet that had lots of paper bags in it, little brown paper bags. And when they opened up their brown paper bags, they found a total of $40,000 tucked away in the closet. And yet this, this husband and wife died of malnutrition. There's also a lady known in American history. You can look her up. Don't do it now. If you got your smartphone or something, don't do it now. But there's a lady in American history known as Hetty Green. Anybody ever heard of Hetty Green? Hetty Green was an interesting lady. Uh, she was called America's Greatest Miser. This sounds a little hot up there. America's Greatest Miser. What's a miser? Stingy. A cheapskate. So... This lady, how would you like to have the title of America's Greatest Miser? I could make a comment about that, but I'm not going to. All right, when she died in 1916, which is a long time ago, when she died in 1916, she left an estate that, that was estimated to value $100 million. Now, $100 million is a lot of money today, but $100 million was a lot of money in 1916. Now, Hetty Green, though she had an estate of $100 million, ate cold oatmeal because it was too expensive to heat the water to cook it. And then, other stories I could tell you about her, this one is, is rather tragic. Her son had to suffer a leg amputation because when he hurt his leg, she delayed caring for his leg for so long that it got to the point where it was... It couldn't be treated, but do you know why she delayed treating it so long? Because she was looking for a free clinic. She was looking for a free clinic and looked for it for so long that eventually his leg got so bad that it had to be amputated. She was, she was wealthy, but she lived like she was a pauper. Hetty Green is an illustration of too many Christian believers today. They have limitless wealth at their disposal, yet they are living like they are paupers. They are dying of malnutrition, spiritual malnutrition, and yet God has provided everything that they need. The book of Ephesians, if you learn anything about the book of Ephesians, I want you to learn about how rich you are in Christ Jesus. I don't mean rich financially. But I want you to understand, I hope and I pray that the Holy Spirit of God will give us a fresh awareness and an understanding of how rich we are in Christ Jesus. I want you to understand what God has done for you so that you can live the life that you want to live and that He wants you to live. Tonight we begin this new study through the book of Ephesians. And if you've got your notes, uh, uh, I want you to... Fill in the blank on a couple of things here. Some refer to the book of Ephesians as the highest ground in the New Testament. The highest ground in the New Testament. Others call it the crown or the climax of Paul's letters. Put those in the blanks here. The crown or the climax of Paul's letters. Perhaps the only other book in the New Testament that would carry more theological weight, I would say, would probably be the book of Romans. But you put the book of Romans and the book of Ephesians right up there together. They're, they're both, uh, theologically, they're, they're, they're both the, the climax and the crown of, of Paul's letters. And so I want to kind of introduce the book to you tonight. And uh, we'll just get into a couple of verses here in a little bit. But just kind of introduce the whole, take a panoramic view of the whole book. And, and then we'll dig in a little bit deeper. First of all, talk about the author, the date, and the place of writing. Of course, the author of the book is Paul. But how do we know that? Where does he tell us that? Yeah, what, the first word, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. Now, when you're writing a letter, where do you put your name? At the end of the letter. 
But in that day and time, when you wrote a letter, that the author's name was not at the end, the author's name was at the beginning, which kind of makes sense. It's like, oh, so this is who it's from. I mean, have you ever gotten a letter, maybe a couple of pages long, and you've got to kind of flip through, who is this from, you know? Of course, you don't get letters anymore, do you? You get emails now, right? Text messages, you know. We, we, don't, we don't know how to write letters anymore. Uh, but but if, we, if you were to get a letter tomorrow, you probably, unless you saw the name on the envelope, you'd have to look to the end of the letter to see who sent it to you. Not in that day. In that day, they had a pretty good system, really. They, the author of the letter was listed first. So Paul identifies himself at the very first of the letter. Now, one of the interesting things about this letter is that there is the absence of the usual personal greetings and the fact that th- there's no specific problems that are, are addressed. That's led most scholars to believe that this was probably, put this on your notes, it was probably a circular letter. A circular letter. Now, what I mean by circular letter is not that it was in the shape of a circle. What I mean by circular letter is that it was a letter that was passed around. It was passed around from a lot of the, the, uh, the cities in that area, more than likely. Uh, Colossians, the, the, the people in, in Colossae perhaps read this letter. Uh, Laodicea perhaps read this letter. Different, different cities in that area, they believe, in fact, in, in some, of the, some of the manuscripts where it says, to the saints in Ephesus, there is a blank there. To the saints, it would say, and there was a blank there in some of the manuscripts. And that's what, one of the things that led scholars to believe that this, this probably, at least possibly, was a circular letter intended for all the, the churches in the area of Asia Minor. Alright? Uh, now, the next thing is number three on your notes. Ephesians is one of, of Paul's four prison letters. Paul wrote Ephesians while under house arrest as a prisoner in Rome. If you have your Bibles, uh, look with me just to get an idea, a, a taste, if you will, of what we mean by having a letter written from Rome while in prison. Chapter 3, verse 1. For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus for the sake of you Gentiles. Paul mentions his imprisonment there. Chapter 4, verse 1. As a prisoner for the Lord Jesus, uh, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. He reminds us again that he was a prisoner. Uh, chapter 6, verse 19. Pray also for me that whenever I open my mouth, words may be given me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. Paul was saying, listen, I'm chained up. I'm chained up here. I'm in prison. So, even though he was chained, literally chained, even though he was under house arrest, a prisoner in Rome, and he was there for about two years, I believe, while he was in that prison, Paul took the time to write some letters to some friends in other churches, and one of those letters were to the friends uh, in the city of Ephesus. So it was one of the prison letters. Number four on your notes, the other prison epistles, and just so that you'll know, are the books of, there's three blanks there, so if you can guess what goes in the blanks. Philippians is one. Colossians is the other one. And there's another one. Begins with a P. We said Philippians. Philippians, Colossians, Philemon. So there's four letters that are known as prison epistles or prison letters. Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. All of them written probably close to the same time. Not necessarily, I'm not saying the same day or even the same week, but, but all written within a period of two years probably. In fact, number five on your notes, Paul likely wrote Ephesians around 61 to 63 A.D. Uh, 61 to 63 A.D. Uh, so in that two-year window of time there, some would say 60 to 62, but, but in that two-year window of time there, two or three-year window of time, Paul likely wrote all four of these prison epistles. He was in prison for two years there in Rome. So during that two-year prison uh, time, he wrote these letters. Now, look at the end of chapter, or, or chapter 6, the end of the letter. Someone is mentioned here that's interesting. Verse 21. 
Again, we're just taking a panoramic view of this letter to get a, an idea of what it's like before we dig in. Uh, chapter 6, verse 21. Tychicus, that's kind of hard to say. Say it with me. Tychicus. Can you say it better than I do? No, all right. We're going to call him Ty, okay? Ty, the dear brother and faithful servant in the Lord, will tell you everything so that you also may know how I am and what I am doing. I am sending him to you for this very purpose so that you may know how we are and that he may encourage you. Here's the question. Paul was chained in Rome, house arrest. He writes a letter called that we call Ephesians. Then he wrote Colossians, and he wrote the letter that, that we call Philippians, and he wrote Philemon. They didn't have the U.S. Postal Service. They didn't have FedEx. How in the world did the letters get there? Somebody carried them. You know who that somebody is now, don't you? Ty. That's right. Good old Ty. Ty was hanging out in Rome with Paul. And Paul says, Ty, I need you to go somewhere for me. I need you to carry this letter to the church in Ephesus. Let's think for a moment what it must have been like. This is just theory for a moment. But let's just, just, just think for a moment what it must have been like for Ty to carry a letter from Paul to the church in Ephesus. He's walking down the road and he's carrying this letter that was written by the Apostle Paul. And it's in his hands and it's his responsibility. And then he gets to the church and he says, I got a letter here for you. From the church, or from Paul. It's going to, that's going to mean something to you here in just a few minutes, but I just want you to realize, I want you to realize that sometimes we think of the great Apostle Paul and the incredible man that he was, the author that he was, church planner that he was, but we, we sometimes forget about what we would call the little people. The people who still played an important role in the kingdom of God. Ty was one of those people. What was Ty's job? Ty's job was to carry the letter to the church at Ephesus. Now, you, you might not think that's a big deal, but let me ask you this. Have you ever lost anything? Somebody ever? Guys, has your wife ever told you, hey, honey, would you go pay this bill, you know, make sure you... And then later she asks you, did you pay it? And you say... What, what bill? What, what are you talking about? Well, where is it? What did you do with it? Uh, I don't know. Have you ever done that? Come on, guys. Be honest. Have you? No. I'm the only one. Okay. I'm the only one. Old? Huh? Not yet. All right. Well, ladies, you've got a better husband than Lisa does. That's all I'll say. But oh, Ty, how about Ty carrying a letter from Paul that we are reading even tonight? You see, there, there are no little people in God's kingdom. We all have an important job to play, an important role to play. All right, so written uh, around 61 to 63 A.D., the city of Ephesus. Let's talk about that for a moment. Interesting city. Ephesus was the most important city in Western Asia Minor, which is now called Turkey. Uh, some of you have been to Ephesus. I remember talking to some of you about Ephesus. It's still in existence today. You can tour that city, the ruins of that city. Uh, it had a harbor that at that time opened into the Keister River, which in turn emptied into the Aegean Sea. Uh, and that's, the reason that's important is because it was also an intersection of major trade routes. Put this on your notes. Ephesus became a commercial center. It was at a commercial trade route. It became a commercial center. It became one of those cities that everybody knew about. One of those cities that lots of people traveled through. One of those cities that was big and important and uh, had great influence. Now, that will be important to you in just a moment because I want you to find out in a moment how long Paul stayed in this city. Uh, which brings us to number two. 
the city of Ephesus, number two, it boasted a pagan temple dedicated to Roman goddess Diana. Sometimes referred to as the Greek word Artemis. Take your Bibles and go to uh, Acts chapter 19. Acts chapter 19. Uh, I wish we could read the whole chapter, but we're going to start in verse 23. Acts 19 is the story of Paul on his missionary journey going to Ephesus. It's the background story, so help you understand uh, the letter of of Ephesians. But starting in verse 23, here's what we read. About that time there arose a great disturbance about the way. Now, the way is simply another name for Christians. That's what they used to be called. Anybody know why they were called the way? I think I heard it. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth and the life. I am the way. That's what Jesus said. And so, that's what his followers were called for the longest time. They were called followers of the way. And so, about that time, there arose a great disturbance about the way. Uh, a silversmith named Demetrius, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought in no little business for the craftsmen. He called them together along with workmen in related trades and said, Men, you know that we have received a good income from this business. And you see and hear how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus and in practically the whole province of Asia. So, first of all, Paul has had a lot of people saved in that city. That's what he's saying so far, all right? He says that man-made gods are no gods at all. Which is kind of funny when you think about it. Man-made gods are no gods at all. Well, who made them? Man did. So they're not gods. So that was Paul's teaching. There is danger not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis, which is another name for Diana, Uh, that the great temple of Artemis will be discredited and the goddess herself who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world will be robbed of her divine majesty. (laughs) They said, now guys, we've got a problem. First of all, the problem is this. Our goddess might be discredited. And and notice that he says people from all over the world come here. That's how important this was. That's that's how... uh, how well known the city of Ephesus was, and especially the temple of, of Artemis or the temple of, or, of Diana. And it says that uh, there is danger not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited. And the goddess herself, who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world, will be robbed of her divine majesty. And if that happens, guess what, guys? We are out of business. It's a money issue for these, for these guys. And we're going to be out of business. When they heard this, they were furious and began shouting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Soon the whole city was in uproar. The people seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia, and rushed as one man into the theater. Paul wanted to appear before the crowd, but the disciples would not let him. Even some of the the officials of the province, friends of Paul, sent him a message begging him not to venture into the theater. By the way... The ruins of that theater are still there today. It is said that it could hold up to 25,000 people. It's a huge theater. I've never been there. I've seen pictures of it. It's a huge theater, and the remnants are still there today. The assembly was in confusion. Some were shouting one thing, some another. Some of the people did not even know why they were there, which is kind of funny. Uh, They just know something's happening, so they're showing up, you know. They didn't know why they were there. The Jews pushed Alexander to the front, and some of the crowd shouted instructions to him. He motioned for silence in order to make a defense before the people. But when they realized he was a Jew, they all shouted in unison for about how long? Two hours they're shouting. And what are they shouting? Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Imagine 25,000 people crammed into this theater, and for two hours... They're shouting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. The city clerk quieted the crowd and said, Men of 
of Ephesus. Doesn't all the world know that the city of Ephesus is the guardian of the temple of the great Artemis and of her image which fell from heaven? All the world knows this. That, that's how important this city is. All the world knows this. That's how important this temple is. Therefore, verse 36, since these facts are undeniable, you ought to be quiet and not do anything rash. You've brought these men here, though they have neither robbed temples nor blasphemed our goddess. If then Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a grievance against anybody, the courts are open and there are pro-councils. They can press charges. There's anything further you want to bring up, it must be settled in a legal assembly. As it is, we are in danger of being charged with rioting because of today's events. And in that case, we would not be able to account for this commotion since there is no reason for it. After he said this, he dismissed the assembly. Now, look at chapter 20, verse 1. Chapter 20, verse 1 says this. When the uproar had ended, Paul sent for the disciples and and after encouraging them, said goodbye and set out for Macedonia. Paul spent uh, a good deal of time there. In fact, the next note there, number three, Paul made Ephesus a center for evangelism for about three years. For about three years. In fact, it says in verse 31 of chapter 20, So be on your guard. Remember that for three years I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. So Paul, for about three years, made Ephesus the center for evangelism. Now, if you know anything about Paul, you you probably should recognize he rarely stayed anywhere very long. He was a church planter and an evangelist at heart, and he traveled from place to place to place, and he'd be there just long enough to get a church started, just to get a few people together. Not a church as we'd consider it today, but just to get a few people together, and then he'd appoint some leaders, and then he'd move on to the next city. Paul had... Paul loved to travel. He loved to go to city, to city, to city, to city. But when he got in Ephesus, he stayed there for three years. Longer than he stayed anywhere else. And I believe one of the reasons he stayed in Ephesus for three years was because of that gigantic temple that stood on the hilltop. The temple of Diana, or Artemis. And there was, and we're going to talk about this in a few moments, but there was such darkness in that city. There was lots and lots of work to be done there. So Paul stayed there for three years. And tell me, now that we've read it, tell me why he left. I just read the Scripture to you. Why did he leave? There was a riot there. There was a riot there. And Paul had to leave for his own safety. Now, the church there apparently flourished for some time, but later needed the warning. Put this in your notes. This is interesting. Needed the warning in Revelation 2, 1 through 7. I'll just read that for you real quickly, or or part of it. Revelation 2. It's interesting that God says, okay, here's the way the world's going to end. And as He's writing the book of Revelation... He writes a letter to seven different churches. And one of the churches that he writes to, chapter 2, verse 1, to the angel of the church in Ephesus, write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden candlesticks. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men and that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardship for my name and have not grown weary. Yet, I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. Remember the height from which you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I'll come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. So this was a church that Paul established that did incredibly well for a long time, but then eventually needed the warning from Revelation 2. So that's the city and the church in Ephesus. Now, let me talk to you a little bit about the theological message. Unlike several of the other letters that Paul wrote, Ephesians it was not written in response to a specific circumstance or a controversy. Those are the two words that need to go in the blanks there. Paul did not write this letter with a specific circumstance or controversy in mind, which is unusual. Most of Paul's letters are written 
where he addresses a particular error in the church, or where he addresses certain heresies or problems in the church. Ephesians doesn't have that. You don't see anywhere in Ephesians where, like, like in 1 Corinthians, Paul would say, now concerning, and then he'd talk about a problem. Now concerning, and he'd address that, that problem. You don't find that in Ephesians. That's, again, one of the things that leads people to believe that this was probably a, probably a circular letter rather than one intended for one congregation. Uh, so that's one of the interesting things about the book. It doesn't address any problems or any heresies. Here's what it does do. It paints a picture of what the church ought to be like and what God has done for the church to make the church possible. It gives us, gives us a grand look at what God has done to help us understand the dimensions of God's eternal purpose and grace and the high goals He has for the church. So, number two on your notes, put this in... in Ephesians falls into two parts. I want you to get your, your Bibles, put it in your hand, and I want to show you that it falls into two parts. And you can put this on your notes. The first part, chapters 1 through 3, are doctrinal. Doctrinal. Get your Bibles out. Look at chapters 1, 2, and 3. And if you can just scan... Uh, what those chapters are about. For example, in my Bible, it says in chapter 1, spiritual blessings in Christ, and, and chapter 2, made alive in Christ, and one in Christ. All of these things are big doctrinal issues, all right? That's chapters 1, 2, and 3. That's the first, literally, the first half of the book is all about doctrine, uh, the things that we believe, the things that God has done for us. Chapters 4 through 6 are more practical in nature. That goes in your blank there more practical in nature, chapters 4 through 6. Maybe I can summarize it this way. Chapters 1 through 3 outline our spiritual privileges. If you want to put that on your notes, that is what God has done for us. This is what God has done for us. Chapters 1 through 3, these are our spiritual privileges. This is doctrine. This is what God has done for us. And then, chapters 4 through 6 discuss our responsibilities as Christians. Here's how you ought to live. Chapters 4 through 6. Now, I don't want you to take my word for it. I want you to, because it's fascinating the way the letter is, is laid out. I want you to go chapter 4, verse 1. Chapter 1, 2, and 3 is about what? Doctrine. Alright, chapter 4, verse 1. Somebody read chapter 4, verse 1 out loud, very loud for us. Chapter 4, verse 1. Somebody do it, because nobody's going to do it. Alright? All right, did you see what he said in that very first verse? I urge you to live a life worthy. Live a life worthy of the calling you have received. What calling? What I've just explained to you in the first three chapters. Now I want to talk to you about how you should live. I've talked to you in the first three chapters about what God's done for you. Now beginning in chapter 4, Paul is saying, here's what I want to talk to you about from the rest of the letter. How you should live. So in chapter 4, he talks about uh, how you should live as children of light. Verse 17. So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding, etc., etc. And, and he says you ought to live like children of light. Chapter 5, verse 1. Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children, and live a life of love. And in chapter 5, he talks to wives about how they should live in submission to their husbands and, and how husbands should live as a sacrifice for their wives. And in chapter 6, he talks about children obeying your parents and slaves and master. Here's how you need to live the Christian life. Very interesting how the letter falls into two separate sections. The first half about doctrine, second half about behavior. Many of Paul's letters followed that uh, format, by the way, but it's so evident in, in the book of Ephesians. Now, let me stop there and just see if you've got any questions so far based on what we've said, uh, what we've looked at. Do you have any questions so far? Questions or comments? Uh-huh. Right, right, right. 
Uh-huh. You know, Paul, excuse me, Paul had a small group of people that, uh, that kind of followed him around. That he mentored them and they, they ministered to him, especially in those times when, when he was in prison. Uh, he was often allowed to have guests, especially house arrest, the first imprisonment in Rome. He, he was house arrest. And so he was allowed to have guests to come visit him. And so those are the kind of guys that, guys that he knew that had, had worked with him in the past. Uh, they would come to see him. You know. I don't think he was arrested, no. No, he, he was not arrested, but he was, he was there with him. I don't think we have any... Uh, and one indication of that would be, Bill, that he was out allowed to leave to take the letter uh, to, to Ephesus. All right. Uh, we're doing good so far. Let me, let me tell you uh, just kind of uh, some of the very memorable passages in the New Testament that we know are from the book of Ephesians. I just want to call that to your attention. You start thinking about some of the famous passages that you've memorized or that you've heard taught or preached. For example, Ephesians 2, 8, 9. For it's by grace you've been saved through faith, that not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Or Ephesians 4, 4 through 6. There's one body and one spirit, just as you were called, but one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. That's a very famous scripture. comes from Ephesians chapter 4. Or Ephesians chapter 5. Uh, the, that scripture tells wives to submit to their husbands and husbands to love their wives as their own body. That's in the book of Ephesians chapter 5. Or Ephesians chapter 6. Mike we're talk, was talking about this a moment ago about putting on the spiritual armor of God. That very, very famous scripture. It comes from Ephesians chapter 6. So there's lots of good stuff that we're going to be looking at over the coming weeks. What I'd like to do now is to go back to chapter 1, verse 1, and use the first two verses to now introduce the letter to you as we look a little bit more closely at what Paul wrote. Chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. If you look closely at the first two verses, you get a picture of what God can do if we'll just give Him the chance. There's first of all, and this is on your notes, there's a picture of what God can do in an individual. Put that on your notes. What God can do in an individual. The name Paul, at the head of the letter, commanded immediate attention. Paul's name had power in Ephesus. Remember now, how many, how many years did he spend in Ephesus? Three years. And during that three years' time, he won lots of people to the Lord. Remember what the accusation was against him in Acts. It says he, he's turned the, nearly the whole city to followers of the way. He won lots of people to the Lord. Now, Paul once wrote to the Corinthians, and he said something like this to the Corinthian church. He said a person may have 10,000 teachers in Christ, but he does not have many fathers. He wrote that in, in one of the letters uh, to the church at Corinth. A person may have 10,000 teachers, but he doesn't have many fathers. Paul was the spiritual father for most of the Christians in Ephesus. Please understand that. That is such an important point. He was the spiritual father for most of the people in Ephesus. And so a letter from the one who had led them to Jesus would be cherished. That's why I was talking about, that's why I was talking about Ty carrying this letter from Paul. And when he brought it to the church at Ephesus and said, I've got a letter for you, and who's it from? It's from Paul. That would have made a huge difference as they took the letter in their hand. Uh, the, the excitement level would have grown and, and would have been very, very high when they understood that this is a letter from their spiritual father. This is a letter from the man who led them to the Lord. This is a letter from their pastor for three years. This was a letter from the man who had discipled them. This was a letter from Paul. Guys, we don't understand how significant that is because we get letters all the time now. We get emails all the time. We get text messages all the time. We get instant messages on Facebook all the time. We are constantly bombarded by messages from people. But not then. If you got a letter, it was a significant day. But if you got a letter from Paul, 
your spiritual father. It was a high watermark in your life. And so, Paul, their spiritual father, gave them this letter. But the first word of the book not only gives us the author of the letter, it's also a reminder of what God can do in an individual. You see, let's talk for a moment. We've got about nine or ten minutes. Let's talk for a moment about Paul and about the people he wrote to. How many books of the New Testament carry the name Paul? Do you know? I hear something. Thirteen. Thirteen New Testament books were written by Paul. But do you remember that it wasn't always, his name wasn't always Paul? For the first half of his life, what was his name? Saul, exactly. Now, remember who Saul was. He was a Jew from the tribe of Benjamin. And what you may not know is that he, he probably was named for somebody. Nick, or, or, or named after somebody, I should say. He was a Jew from the tribe of Benjamin. There was another Jew from the tribe of Benjamin who happened to be the first king of Israel. And what was his name? Saul. Paul was also a Jew from the tribe of Benjamin. And it's likely that his, mo- his mom and his dad named him after the first king of Israel. And they named him Saul. If you read very much about Saul in, in the book of Acts, before his conversion, he seemed to be kind of arrogant, self-righteous, a Pharisee, very proud of his genealogy, very religious in his zeal, until one day everything changed, and that, of course, happened on the road to Damascus where he met Jesus Christ. And from that moment on, everything changed. And, and by the way, could I say this? When you really meet Jesus, your life does change, doesn't it? It really does change. But the interesting thing happened. God took that, that name, Saul, and He took the S off of it, and He put a P there in its place. He was so different, He needed a different name. And so God called him Paul. I don't know if you realize what the word Paul means. Remember, Saul was a very arrogant man, very uh, uh, pharisaical. Uh, Saul was was self-righteous. Saul was a big man. Now, not physically. In fact, historians say he was a bald-headed, bow-legged Jew. A little, bald-headed, bow-legged Jew. No comments, please. Josephus is the one who said that he was a small, bald-headed, bow-legged Jew. So he's not a big man. Physically, at least. Not a big man in that regard at all. But, he was an arrogant man as a Jew. He was Saul, as Saul. He was arrogant. He was self-righteous. He was a Pharisee. He, he was zealous. He was a big man on campus, if we could say it that way. You know what Paul means? You know what the name Paul means? It's fascinating to me. God changed his name. The name Paul means the little one. The little one. Which is a wonderful name for for one who once thought he was so big and thought he was so great. But that's what Christ does for you. He can change your perspective and change who you are. In fact, it's interesting, very, very interesting to me that what Paul, the little one, later wrote on three different occasions, here's what he wrote. I am the least of the apostles and do not deserve to even be called an apostle. I'm the little one. 1 Corinthians 15.9 1 Timothy 1.15 He said, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. Ephesians 3.8 He says, I am less than the least of all God's people. The little one. All that Saul gloried in, Paul flung away for Jesus' sake. He was content to be the little one so that Jesus could be the big one in him. Some people never learn that lesson. They try to be somebody. 
They try to strive to be somebody. And that's okay to have goals. But they strive to be somebody and be big. And they never let Christ have control of who they are. Paul is an example that God can change an individual when we humble ourselves and realize we have nothing to offer Him but our sins. That's the picture of what God can do in an individual. Put this on your notes. In Ephesians, we also see a picture of what God can do in a community. This is my favorite part of the study, so I'm going to ask you to really focus for the next four or five minutes. Verse 1 not only tells us about the author of the letter, it also tells us about the recipients of the letter. And it says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and we could say a lot about that, but time will not permit it now, to the who? The saints. When you hear the word saints, what do you normally think of? Now, not, I'm not talking about New Orleans saints. I'm not talking about football. When, when I think of saints, I usually think of the Catholic Church. They have saints. Well, do you know what you have to do to become a saint in the Catholic Church? Die. <laughs> yeah, well, that's one thing. <laughs> You've got to die. And you have to do something significant with your life. And then, after you die, you have to perform two miracles. After you die. Yeah. <laughs> Or maybe, it's ha- maybe it has to, two miracles have to be verified after you die. I need to go back and look that up. But, uh, but that's what makes them saints in the, in the Catholic Church. I want to tell you something. I'm looking at a bunch of saints tonight. But not from the Catholic Church perspective. Saint simply means this. People who belong uniquely to God. People who belong uniquely to God. A saint is someone whose life, speech, actions, and attitudes and relationships point to Jesus. Now notice where the saints are located. Where are these people who uniquely belong to God located? In Ephesus. Now, to be a saint in Ephesus, somebody who uniquely belongs to God, is is to be like a beautiful lily in a stagnant pond. Ephesus rivaled Corinth as the filth capital of the world. Not the fifth capital of the world, but the filth capital of the world. Remember about the temple of Diana. That was not just a false goddess. Do you know one of the reasons it was so popular? Because prostitution occurred there in the name of worship. Remember I told you it was a trade route. I said, this is significant, we'll get back to it. It was a major city that had a major trade route. Lot, and I'm not trying to be crude or crass, but lots of sailors came through there. And when the sailors came through there, and lots of businessmen came through there, when the traveling businesses, businessmen came through, guess where they made sure they went? They made sure they went to church, except they called their church the Temple of Diana. They made sure they went to lay down with the temple prostitutes in the name of their religion. Now, the Temple of Diana was considered one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It took 220 years to build. It, was, it had 127, 127 56-foot columns. It was 408 feet, 18 feet long, 239 feet wide. And it sat on top of a hill, and it was a massive structure that nobody could miss. And here's why that's so important. Sin was at the very heart of religion in Ephesus. When we say that God can change a community, I want you to see that it's not mere idle talk. Ephesus was filled with perversion. Ephesus was filled with pollution. Ephesus was such a dark place. It had such a dark side to it. In fact, we've run out of time, but Evil spirits are mentioned in Ephesus in verses 12, 13, 15, and 16 of Acts 19. Acts 19, verses 12, 13, 15, and 16 talks about the different references to evil spirits in Ephesus. There was a dark side to Ephesus. Yet in this dark setting, the word of the Lord spread wildly and grew in power, it says in verse 20. And that's why it's so important when it says to the saints, 
the people who uniquely belong to God in Powdersville. Now, I'm going to have to skip some things here. I'm just trying to see where I'm going to pick up. I'll tell you this and we'll close. Um, I once heard about an old preacher who had a unique way of putting things. And when people would ask him where he lived, he'd say, well, my temporary address is... And he'd give him his address. For example, if you were to ask me where I lived, following his example, I would say, well, my temporary address is 104M Court. But my permanent home is being prepared for me right now in heaven. But my temporary address is in Powdersville. Geographically, I live in Powdersville, but spiritually, my life is connected to God in Christ Jesus. To the saints, the people who uniquely belong to God in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The last thing on your notes, this is a picture of what God offers every person. You know what God offers every person? God offers every person grace. And God offers every person peace. I wish we had the time to dig into that, but maybe that will give you something to look at and study at your, on your own. God offers you, He offers every person grace. And He offers every person peace. Grace is God giving me what I do not deserve. Peace is the result of God giving me what I do not deserve. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints in Powdersville, the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me pray with you. Father, I know we just barely, barely scratched the surface of this letter, but I pray that you give us a deeper appreciation and understanding of it. I pray Father, this week as, as we're in our quiet time, maybe you just remind us to read part of it or read the whole thing. And, and I pray, Father, you give us a desire, an understanding, a, a comprehension that is beyond our human reasoning that something, the Holy Spirit might, might bring something to our mind and to our attention about our lives. And thank you most of all for Jesus Christ who can change our lives, change an individual, change a community, even in the darkest places of the world. And thank you that you offer each of us grace and peace. And it's in the name of Jesus I pray. And all God's people said, Amen. God bless you. Thank you very much.